Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 323rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Yanni Choi Gordon. Yanni is the principal and the chief operating officer for JMG Financial Group, an independent RIA based in Chicago, Illinois, that oversees nearly $5 billion in assets under management for close to 1,500 client households. What's unique about Yanni, though, is how through her nearly four decades with JMG Financial Group, Yanni has been part of not only the firm's succession plan to its second generation of owners, but now its third generation of leaders. And along the way, has personally recruited, trained, and retained the majority of the firm's employees by implementing stringent assessments in her hiring process to ensure that new employees are in alignment with the firm's expectations and values to be able to succeed and grow with the firm for the long run. In this episode, we talk in depth about how during Yanni's 36 years with JMG, she's not only seen the evolution of the firm and its three generations of ownership and leadership, but has been integral in building the hiring, training, and development systems that's allowed the firm to transition to its current generation of partners and owners, most of whom have been with the company for over 20 years after having first been hired and trained by Yanni herself. Why Yanni creates and implements a unique kind of work sample assessment for all prospective employees based on the actual duties of the position she's hiring for so she can evaluate how the candidates think and process information and approach problem solving with the actual tasks of the job. And how JMG structures its leadership roles, where Yanni not only oversees the training and development of newer advisors, but also coordinates and supervises accounting, operations, human resources, and IT, as well as working with the firm's chief talent officer. We also talk about how JMG developed their own proprietary CRM internally more than 25 years ago because they realized they need better capabilities to input taxpiration data into CRM systems at the time, and in the years since has been able to further customize the software to the precise needs of the firm as it's grown. Why JMG implements strict criteria for who can own shares of the firm, including a limit on ownership size with a cap of just 20% of shares, and a rule that requires owners over the age of 70 to sell back their shares to keep ownership fresh and more closely connected to the current state of the firm. And why JMG implements a client capacity of 50 to 80 clients per advisor and keeps detailed track of the time it takes for employees to complete client tasks, both to avoid burnout and to continue to develop better and more efficient processes. And be certain to listen to the end, where Yanni shares why she believes that a portion of the industry's rising level of M&A deals is really a result of inconsistent definitions of advisor titles and insufficient career paths that are failing to nurture newer advisors into the next generation of owners. Why Yanni advises younger, newer advisors to first understand the culture and values they feel are most important to them personally, and then use those standards to find their ideal role at a firm to really ensure it's a firm that will take the time to support them and help them grow. And why Yanni's own definition of success has changed over time, where at this stage, it's less about her personal career growth and more about the impact and value she can provide in the lives of the employees that she leads and the pride she feels in knowing she's developing the next generation of leaders in the financial services industry. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Yanni Choi Gordon. Welcome, Yanni Choi Gordon, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. 
Hi, Michael. I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation with you. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm 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 excited about today's discussion and and delving into to me just what advisory firms look like when they really evolve over multiple decades. Uh, you know, I, I find for a lot of advisory firms, there's a lot of focus these days around succession planning. Like, what do we do to have an advisory firm sur- survive the uh, you know the the departure of the original founders and the introduction of a next generation of of ownership and figuring out how to navigate that and to me, in some ways, it kind of mirrors what a lot of affluent clients go through with with their families as well. Like we've we built this wealth, and then we want to make sure that we leave it to the children, and and hopefully you raise them to be good, financially responsible adults for the, this uh, uh, inheritance that we may be leaving them. But as we know on the on the family side in particular, right the 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 famous saying "a shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations" that it's it's often it's not even the it's not even the second the transition from the first to second generation that's the hardest. It's actually the transition from the second to the third that's really difficult to navigate. And I know your firm has has been through this. You are coming up on forty years in the business, uh, third generation of leadership, like fifth generational cycle of of owners that have rotated through, and and so uh, you know for all the discussion in the industry of. To me, kind of like the theories of how advisory firms will evolve as they go through multiple generations. I'm just I'm excited to have the conversation today of what it's actually looked like with a firm that's gone through this over the past 35 to 40 years, that's actually done multiple rotations of leadership and multiple rotations of ownership, and what you found like actually really works to sustain <laughs> a firm through all of that. Well, I'll say it's not easy, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and I think the important thing is to remember really the the three components of our business. And that's, you know, it's serving our clients. It's providing that superior service. And then it's managing the business, uh, managing that strategy and investing in your people. And I kind of look at the way our firm has evolved over time. And I've just had the privilege to, to be a part of it at the early stages. And so um, I, I look to uh, all the iterations that we've gone through, pain uh, and sacrifice and also time and trust. I think it really comes down to trust uh, of your colleagues and your partners. I, I like the way that you frame that, that sort of like the three components just that you ultimately have to figure out in in making an advisory firm sustain. It's it's obviously serving clients, right? Like if we're, if we're not serving clients well, they tend not to pay fees and there is no business. But even if you got that, you still have to figure out how to actually manage the business, right? There's there's systems and tech and processes and strategy that uh, and just effectively managing the profit and loss statement to be a, a, an economically viable business that still has to be done well. And then there's this people component where you, like, we have to, if you're going to be around that long, you you have to really figure out like, how do you attract talent? How do you develop talent? How do you retain talent? So they stick around in the long run for the investments that you've made. Like you, you have, if you want to be around for decades, not just like another decade, but like decades yeah. <laughs> as, as your firm has been, you, you, you have to really figure out sustaining systems of attracting and developing people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not really decades of our firm, but it's decades together. I, I mean, I've been at the firm now for um, over 36 years. That's, you know, that's a long time. That's pretty much my well, whole adult life. Um, but also growing up, 
uh, with my partners. Um, and that's just been a really special experience and really what a special cycle. So I, I think to start, I'd love to just get an understanding of the advisory firm as it exists today. Like just how big is the the firm if you measure by assets or revenue? What's the, how many staff, how many clients? Like just help us visualize the 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 business as it exists today. Today we're um, we're over ninety employees and still continuing to grow and plans to add on to that. Uh, we're at just under five billion in AUM. Okay. Uh, the other part of it is we also prepare tax returns, so we prepare over fourteen hundred returns today. Um, and when I mean we prepare them, we prepare them. The advisors are all uh, very competent in tax. They all know how to prepare a return. They all know how to review a return and they all sign the returns. Uh, that's the way I learned uh, growing up at the firm myself. And I think that's been a really uh, value add to our clients. And it's also uh, about the relationship with our clients. Um, you know, I've known my clients for uh, as long as I've been at the firm and to see them at every stage of their financial life, you know, planning for their retirement and then becoming their advisor during their life of retirement. And then now, you know, as they're at the end of their life, working with their families on their estate. And just that in itself is such a rewarding career and such a privilege from my standpoint to be a part of somebody's life like that. And when you hear the the kids uh, who are older than me, but when you hear them say, what would my mom and dad have done without you? And then typically mm. we usually, you know, get the next generation in the family as clients. That's really, I think, what our firm has been built on is uh, that value add service. And it's really the relationship that we are establishing with the clients for a long period of time. And how many clients is it across the firm of, of 5 billion under management? So I think I, we look at households. Um, sure. the, last, the last count, I believe we're at about, uh, I'd say at about under 1,500. Kind of give you a range. Okay. So I guess typical client sizes or household sizes, if I just do my my rough math, they're like 1,500 households into $5 billion, like average average client households, a couple of million dollars. Is that is that fair in terms of who you guys serve as a, a typical client? Well, actually- we Some smaller and some bigger. Yeah. I would say it's higher only because we also charge a retainer fee. We have okay. a retainer fee. And let me go back to kind of the beginning because when the firm was founded in 1984, we were founded by accountants. And okay. so at that time, um, you know, limited partnerships were really big. So we were actually part of a broker dealer. I had to have my Series 7 at the time. Okay. I wasn't selling anything, but at the time, uh, they were, uh, you know, the, the original founders were selling limited partnerships. What happened was the clients, um, you know, love that idea. They were all corporate uh, executives at publicly traded companies. And um, they said, yeah, I'll, I'll do the limited partnerships, but you're still going to do my tax return, aren't you? <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's what happened. Um, and, and so that was kind of the genesis of comprehensive planning. And so really, I, I think we're probably uh, the firm that maybe could be, say we're the pioneers of the comprehensive approach yeah. because what you know what happened was they said well for doing their investments 
um, we're doing their taxes, we're doing their planning, we're meeting with them throughout the year. Why don't we charge a fee for this planning? And so that's what we've done. Then 10 years later is when we said, you know, we, this, this securities license is really getting in our way and it's really not a big part of our business. Let's give up our licenses and this way we can say we're fee only. And that time too, a couple of the founders really wanted to focus on real estate. So they decided to, to break off and they created a very successful REIT. Um, and, and so that was great. And then the other uh, founders wanted to stay on the planning side and focus on the planning. So that's really when we added the AUM piece. And so to, to, today, uh, we have that. We have the retainer fee for comprehensive planning and then the investment management piece on AUM. So that's why Which, it's hard when we do surveys and things. It's not yeah. always apples to apples, you know, when we, when yeah. people are looking at our firm. So, so all right. So I... I have a couple of questions. That's just about the the fee evolution. So, so the original model back in I guess like the early mid nineteen eighties when you got started uh, was a combination of an ongoing planning fee, and I guess you were getting commissions for the limited partnerships that were getting sold through the broker dealer. But there was no investment management fee. That wasn't a thing yet. Correct. It was a, it was a planning fee, and then the the limited partnership sales. Yes. And and so what was was it an annual planning fee back then like an annual retainer kind of structure? It was it was an annual retainer and uh, paid on a quarterly basis. So I just curious what was a fee? What was it? If you recall, like what what were fees like in the mid nineteen eighties? I mean, you were working with executives of publicly traded firms, like some some fairly affluent high income folks. Yeah, I remember because I was only a staff person. So I think that I recall in the range of maybe four to four thousand, four or five thousand dollars. And in some cases, uh, we um, became a benefit for the C suite for the company. And so the companies love that too because they then their CEO executives could focus on the company and they could, you know, have a a preferred provider, if you will, right. come in and handle everything else for them. Interesting. Because I'm just thinking, I mean, $4,000 nearly 40 years ago, like just, I mean, that was a good sized fee yeah, for, yeah. for doing the work. Like this was, uh, this was, this was a full fledged financial planning fee, not a, you know, we'll, we'll do, we'll do your plan for $250, which I know some advisors were doing back then. Yeah, so, exactly. But that's because we did their tax return. I mean, think about it too. They're right. the high, highest earning executives at the companies. Right. So their income level, you know, could handle it. Yeah. Made sense. So, so then in, in this evolution for your firm, so when, so when did the, I guess like the, the, the partners that were doing the real estate investing, spin off to the REIT? And then when did AUM fees actually show up as part of your model? I think the AUM fees started showing up in about 1995. So, okay. um, and I, I really, I, I don't want to pinpoint um, the year for the sure, but, break off, but it was before then. Okay. Uh, so, and I'm guessing you already were an RIA, a registered investment advisor entity because of the fees you were charging, you just weren't doing an AUM fee? Or do you recall that you Correct. actually had to like spin up an RIA? 
You know, um, with registration, I think we were always registered. I think it's just a matter of disclosure in the ADV. And we broke off um, being, you know, giving up all of our licenses and then being able to say we're we're fee only. Okay. And was that actually a driver even at the time? Like you, you wanted to let, you wanted to let go of the brokerage licenses so you could start marketing under the the fee only label? Because that was very early in 1990s. It was. And I think probably because of the focus on tax and really wanting to be able to provide uh, objective advice to our clients. So really, um, we could say we get paid no matter what. So here, here's our you know, recommendations. Here's you know, how we would manage your portfolio. And, um, but here's on the planning side too. So always everything kind of focused around the tax planning. And so that's why still today, like tax planning is just at at the center of all the, the relationships because I'm, you know, you, you'd said like, you know, client household counts is almost 1500 and you prepared more than 1400 returns last year. So it sounds like just almost every client is, is getting tax returns done in house. Almost, but of that, you know, that's, uh, we, we have a few, uh, entity right. returns Mul- and trusts. Multi-client and, households yes. and trusts. So. Yes, correct. Correct. So, so what does the fee structure look like today? Like how is it, is it still an AUM fee plus a planning fee and you like two services, two fees kind of approach? I would say majority of our clients, um, it's, it's fee and AUM because again, um, I'd say our specialty is the corporate executive client who has a lot of complexity on the right. tax side and estate planning and so on. But you know, a lot of their assets might be tied up in the company, company stock, um, stock options, other benefits, retirement plans, and things like that. So that's where we really, I feel, add that value of the comprehensive planning and having so much knowledge in the area of tax. And, so, and likewise makes it problematic to do a classic AUM fee because they, they can't give you the A to M yet. It's not liquid. It's still options and restricted stock and, and other executive compensation components. Correct. Correct. And and so, you know, and I, I'll say too, just like all the other firms out there, not every client's the right fit for us and um, and we're not the right fit for, for some of the other clients either. So it's really somebody who needs that planning. We're very, um, you know, white glove service. I mean, know everything about our clients. And so that's why they, they look to us almost as their personal CFO, if you will. And what are typical fees today? What's the fee structure now? Yeah, it's the same. I think the fee obviously is higher um, in the range of 10000 planning fee and, and higher um, in addition to um, AUM. Uh, maybe we're managing right away. Maybe it's going to be coming. You know, um, We kind of look at the whole engagement and making sure that we can add value to that client relationship. I think that's what's key. And, and what does the AUM fee side look like? Just I know some firms take the mentality of if if we're getting a little bit more on the planning side, we dial the investment management side back a little from the proverbial 1%. Others like, nope, like full AUM fee for AUM services, full planning fee for planning services. So how, what does the AUM fee look like for you? Well, I'd say um, there's probably a little bit more wiggle room on the planning fee, uh, depending upon you know the client situation. Um, the AUM is is 
that's it it is what it stated it's just like everybody else probably has a tiered system you know 1% on the first so many million and then tier it down after after a certain level and that's still your neighborhood as well like you start at 1% on the first million and tier down from there well actually we start at 1% on the first 2 million and then we tier down after that okay interesting so i guess i'm just trying to visualize normally it's 10,000 plus for a planning fee and then 1% on the first 2 million of AUM. And and I guess just within asterisks with law firms, if it's going to be a really sizable investment account. We know it's coming soon. You may give some flexibility on the planning fee side, knowing there's a large AUM fee coming anyways. Yeah, it could be. Um, it could be the opposite too. I mean, maybe there's more on the planning side. And so we'll have to take that into account as well. Again, which means, for which us- Which means the planning fee gets bigger because it, it be. there's a lot of yeah. stuff going on. It could be. Um, and that's something we will review with the client. Um, we all know that you know, you put a lot of time in up front in establishing a client relationship. We yep. know that. But again, for us, it's really that long-term relationship that we're trying to establish with our client. Plus, you know, we don't, we don't want 100% of our revenue based on AUM. I think that's dangerous. Um, and so looking at the history of the firm, you know, with all of the different market corrections, and I remember the first one I experienced was in uh, 1987, you know, when the market was down over 22% in one day and um, everyone's running around. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, but also if you go back, fast forward, even back to, uh, you know, the 2008 crisis and, and all of the other mini corrections and crashes that we've experienced, you know, at our firm, we didn't have to lay off anybody and we didn't lose any clients. So I think that says a lot about our model and says a lot about the, the way that we nurture that relationship. Um, you know, with the employees, yeah, you know, maybe we had to free salaries um, for maybe a year and a half and no bonuses for a year and a half. I had to cut back on our holiday party. We did a potluck yeah. in the office. And but you know what? I think everyone really had a great time. It's kind of like when the electricity goes yeah. out, you figure out what to do. So, um, but nobody was complaining because nobody lost their job. Yep. Yep. You know, in the grand scheme of things, not not pleasant to tighten your belt, but a lot better to tighten your belt with the job than than without. Exactly. Exactly. So I think from the beginning, I think having that solid business model has served us well. And then the tax preparation is also bundled in with the planning fee, or do you still charge something separately? Because I know complexity of a tax return also can vary wildly from one client to another. Yeah, I would say it, it's, it's, it's more than likely going to be included in the planning okay. if, if we're going to be doing the tax return. And And did I hear correctly that you said for actually getting the tax returns done literally each advisor does their own like does their own tax returns for their clients as opposed to a I don't know a central department of tax folks that just grind on tax returns during during tax season each of the advisors is handling their own yes I, today the advisors are not inputting but they they learned how to as a as a uh, planning associate and then a support advisor and so that's part of our career path development is our entry-level new graduates coming out of college with their, um, you know, degree in financial planning now, which is obviously great that that's happening. It's a great mm -hmm. advantage for, for us now that we can hire people who already know what a CFP is and what that right. curriculum looks like. But they learn how to input returns. And so we are not sending it to a, a separate group of accountants to do it. And I think that's where... Um, you know, that's been the core of our business. 
where the advisor knows how to review a tax return and ultimately they, they sign the tax return. I think a lot of firms today are realizing that they need to maybe add that service. But, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to professionals, um, they don't know the tax part. And, and so right. they may not even be qualified to work at our firm as an advisor if they don't know the tax. So the only reason that advisors may not be doing the inputting now is simply because you've got other team members in the firm that at least cover that part as part of their their own training and development as, as younger, newer advisors. Yes. I mean, every advisor has a support team. And so they're involved in, you know, reviewing uh, the return high level. They know what the return is supposed to look like. There's no right. surprises for our clients because we're doing the projections throughout the year. So it's really more of compliance and getting the returns right. filed. Um, so, but they've earned that way. You know, they've they've learned that throughout their progression in the career path at our firm. Okay. So, so help us understand a little bit more how this has evolved uh, just organizationally, I guess. Uh, you know, you went from um, you know, we just do the planning fees. We do the planning fees, the limited partnerships, then the limited partnerships are gone. Then the real estate investors spin off. Then we're doing investment management and, and, uh, and AUM. I'm going to guess at, at some point you had to build up more of this teams structure because you said you're operating in teams now and so you were, didn't have to do that initially when there weren't enough people to have a team. Uh, so I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you think about the 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 milestone inflection points of where the just the the firm and its structure and its offering had to had to change and evolve. Yeah, I remember it well. Um, it was in uh, 2006, so you know about 20, a little over 20 years after the firm was founded. Another 10 years after that, you know, after that other um, change that that we made at the firm, the leaders at the time decided to restructure the whole compensation structure and ownership back then. And, and that was a pivotal moment. I think that was the time when we really, the leaders, uh, had to decide we, we really need to make sure there's value in this company. So I really credit them for thinking that way longer term um, because they could have just left it the way it is, made a ton of money, retire, and, and then the firm goes away eventually. But they really wanted to have meaningful ownership and they wanted to have value in the firm. So that's when our firm went from silos to an ensemble. And so there was a lot of angst, a lot of discussion. I remember a lot of uh, meetings. Um, they did bring a consultant in to, to kind of help us go through this process. Um, I know that it was painful for the leaders, but you know, they really um, unselfishly uh, put the firm first. And so they really uh, thought about if they want to make this firm grow into something um, in perpetuity, they had to do this now. And so they were the first ones that were, you know, impacted by this plan years later when they retired. So was this essentially the original founders at this point? Like they're 20 years in and starting to look at say, this? They're- yeah, I would say they're this, probably the second generation of leaders. At so this we're already point. in the second. So who like who was the first generation? Where'd they go? Yeah. <laughs> the the first generation was still here right at about that um at this at this pivotal time. 
Um, first generation went with, you know, with the whole real estate side and broke off and, and wanted to focus on that part um, okay. of their business. So this was probably a combination of now the, the second generation and there was one of the originating founders. Um, and so that's where there was a lot of discussion. Oh, interesting. So, so at the point, some of the original founders broke off to to do their their real estate their REIT thing. It, like you had to go through, I guess, just re, like rebuilding leadership at that point because a bunch of the original founder owners exited themselves from running the business. So you needed new new leaders even then. Yes, but I, you know, those new leaders um, joined our firm in the late 1980s. So they were also part of this evolution, just not already in the leadership role. So uh, they stepped into that leadership role as a second generation of leadership at the firm. So, so I guess I'm I'm even just wondering what what that was like, or I guess it was like just what's what seats they took, how that was structured. I mean, very few advisory firms have owner founders who are not the leaders just mm-hmm. like and have made that transition much less yeah. multiple times as 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 your firm has but uh, i know you maybe weren't quite as deeply involved in leadership and yourself at that point but what was that transition like and i guess like what what seats did they fill yeah i mean i think that um at that time everybody was also the leaders were also client service providers. So they're also the financial advisors. So they're doing both. They're managing the business and also managing their clients. At the time, obviously more manageable because we weren't that big. But I think as time went on, I think what's been great uh, in my observation of the history and evolution of our firm is the team and, you know, the teamwork and coming up with an executive team. Um, Also realizing that it is important for our leaders to have that experience as client service providers. Um, You know, I, I, I was fortunate to be given that opportunity also to be, um, you know, enter as a entry level, really, I don't even know what my title was at the time, a clerk, if you will, just learning, uh, and then be given the opportunity to become a client-facing advisor. Um, What happened to me personally is the person who hired me, who was actually the president at the time, he left. He decided to leave our firm after I was at the firm for about five years, mainly because he he got hired by one of our clients and um, totally different business. And I thought I'd be going with him automatically because we were very siloed at the time. And he said, no, I, I need you to stay because he said, I need the clients to stay here and huh. you're the only ones that, that knows the client. So you need to help with the transition to who, to the next advisor, who's going to, to take over for these clients. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, back then I, I really had no idea what that meant for me, but it really opened up uh, doors for me to work with other people at the firm. Um, and I'm very organized. I'm a very detailed person, uh, you know. So I started 
having staff meetings. I started, you know, sharing in the training. Um, then I started to have the responsibility to start hiring people. And so that's kind of when that started. And then, um, and then I had to give up uh, the client facing role um, at the time, mainly for personal reasons back then. You know, I had, I had, my kids were very young. Uh, we didn't have this internet. We didn't have these fancy cell phones that I could work remotely. That was out of the question. And so I also didn't want to give up uh, working. Um, and because I just, that's just the way I'm wired. So I had to figure out a way. And at the time, our vice president of administration decided to retire. And so they asked me if I would be interested in moving into a management role because I'd pretty much done every position. And so, um, I, I made that switch, that transition, really for personal reasons, so that I could have more control over my schedule, but also be the mom, um, and because I had to be in the office. Hindsight, probably the best decision, because I was able to be that person to help with the day-to-day, so that our leaders could focus on you know higher-level company, but also focusing on their clients. And, and so that's kind of how that started with the executive team. So- I, so I'm intrigued by this. I, I guess this, at what point, at what size was the firm when it decided that it needed executive leadership that was separate from the client service folks? Which I guess to me is like when 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 they were fully dedicated to that role and not not multi hatting. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I I kind of go back to maybe that was probably in the late nine. 19- 1990s, early 2000s, in that time frame. It's and kind how of big was the firm at that point? I guess either by assets or just by people. Like how many how many team yeah. members were there by then? By that time, maybe we were. Um, gosh, this is really a, a guess, Michael. And, and yeah, back then maybe we were 30, 20 to okay. 30 people. Okay. So, what does the executive leadership team look like now? I mean, just like what. What are those actual seats? Yeah, so we have five members of our executive team. We have um, our CEO, who is also a client-facing advisor. Um, he has a very large practice of clients, and he's also been with the firm for 26 years. <laughs> so uh, started out at an entry-level position. Uh, our president has been with the firm for almost 24 years. Uh, same thing, grew up at the firm. I actually hired him out of college. And um, he also has uh, client-facing responsibilities, but then, you know, he has, uh, you know, carved out, I would say project type things for, for the, for the business. Um, And then we have our chief investment officer, who's also been with the firm for 27 years. I also hired him out of college and he's, he's, um, he, he now he leads our investment uh, committee, um, but also has a, a full, very full practice as well. And then we have me, uh, who um, as COO and CMO, giving up my client-facing role because understanding that it was pretty much impossible that everybody, you know, we have to, uh, with their responsibilities for the company, be very difficult. And they... Uh, recognize that. So I guess I kind of morphed into just kind of being that person to um, manage the operational side, the day-to-day, the HR, you know, working with our um, technology team. We have our own internal technology team who's been with us, you know, 26 and 20 years uh, with the firm too. Uh, We have a lot of proprietary things, uh, you know, 
our proprietary CRM that was created over 26 years ago by one of my mentors uh, who had that vision, you know, back then. So, um, and then we have uh, recently, we added a chief talent officer um, to, because of our size, um, understanding that we need to have people dedicated to our people. And so she joined us a couple of years ago and she and I work very closely on, um, on our talent. So that's kind of our executive team and we all work together. We all work together. So it sounds like there's actually at this point a mixture of some of the leadership is still client facing, but a lot of the, I guess like the, 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 the systems and people side, right? So you in a COO role and the chief talent officer, those are like full, full, fully uh, dedicated leadership positions without having uh, a big client base on top of it. Yes, correct. But you know, for me, I'm in a unique position because um, because of my uh, experience in the client facing role, and because of my role in the on the marketing side um, of our of just in our industry, um, I'm also still bringing in clients too. Um, I should also mention we we have 19 partners, we have 19 owners of the firm. And so all the owners uh, have additional responsibilities uh, if they have, if their primary role is client facing. So when you go one level further down from this executive team, like what, who or what reports into, in, in, into where, like what's, what's the next layer down of management? Cause just, there's so many people, like you can't, you can't have 85 other people reporting to five five members of the executive team you have to have layers of management so like what are the next layers of management down how is that how is that handled in a firm like yours so with the number of partners we have and everybody has uh, a responsible you know uh, role uh, for the business too. Uh, many of them, the majority of our partners are also client facing, but we also have partners who are not. And I think that says a lot about our firm too, understanding that it's not just about the revenue producing roles, but it's also about those people who um, help to manage the, the business. Um, that's important as well. So we have, you know, um, you know, uh, for, in the executive team, uh, we have different areas. I mean, like for my area, I work with uh, the accounting department. I work with our operations department. I, I work with our HR department. I work with IT and I work with our chief talent officer. But then, be, you know, with these different managers at these different departments, they also have direct reports to them. Right. Uh, we so we also have uh, client practice managers who are responsible for training our staff, and so we have uh, two different types of staff positions that are in the client support side, and so we have two different types of manager managers who also, by the way, they they overlap too. They're also supporting an advisor by working and also working with clients, but then they're also training other individuals. And so I think that's just that overlap has been really critical for the development of our people. And it's so important. It's so uh, important to know what it's like to service a client, but then how are you going to, what better way to teach that to somebody else? And then it goes, you know, down from there. What are the two different, I think you said there are two different types of positions in client support. What are the, mm-hmm. what are the different positions? So we have a client service coordinator person. 
Um, and a lot of them are, you know, the what used to be the registered para planner designation. I, be, I believe it's an FPQP now. Yeah, not FPQP. Um, Yep. And, uh, and so uh, that's one role uh, where they are coordinating actually maybe two to three practices uh, for the advisors and direct report to, to their advisor. In addition, each advisor has either um, a support advisor who has a few years of experience and working towards their CFP. Um, and then we have a more of an entry level planning associate position where they're learning the tools, they're learning our business, they're learning what we do for our clients. And then their progression is to that support advisor role. After the support advisor role, then we have a, a position um, internally uh, for more of a, we'll call it an associate advisor role that's kind of now learning how to manage a practice and learning now they're on the path to becoming a full client facing advisor. And so they'll get the opportunity to work with our um, senior advisors, a lot of partners of the firm, and actually get assigned to some clients um, before they get to that next level of being a full advisor. And so that's on the advisor end, it's it's kind of those three layers. There's like the the entry level, you're learning your initial stuff. There's the support advisor where you're seeing more client interactions and starting to have some some client relationships. And then there's the the full advisor role where You've got your own client base you're responsible for, and I guess, and some people then move up to becoming a partner from there. Yes, yes, and 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 as an advisor, I mean, now they have you know, in every every step, there's always um, overlap. We have our support advisors training our our planning associates. We have our younger advisors training our support advisors, and then we have our senior advisor partners, you know, also working and uh, mentoring and coaching our advisors. Because now, as an advisor, you have a different uh, responsibility, and that's um, some business development um, responsibilities as well. Because that is then the road to potentially being offered um, a partner partnership position. And and so, how, help me understand again just what the what the ultimate advisor team structure is. Like, if I'm if I'm a lead advisor, like who who and how many people are mm-hmm. I guess, supporting me directly or or shared with other advisors? Yeah. So, as an advisor, full advisor, you're going to have a support advisor. Uh, you might even have an associate advisor uh, dedicated to you to start you know, working with your clients ultimately. Um, and then you're going to have a client service coordinator as well. So it's really the the two people um, who are supporting an advisor. But beyond that, uh, the practice managers can step in at any time and help any advisor out. They're, they're managing our staff too in, in their training and development and so on. Um, and, and then we have our internal infrastructure support. We have our own investment operations, uh, who does the administrative side on our for our clients' accounts and is the liaison with, with Schwab. Right now, we, we use Schwab to custody our clients' assets. Uh, and, and so we have that operational side of it. Um, and then internally, we have our own IT department. We have our own accounting department and we have our own HR department. So uh, I guess two follow questions. Like how many different advisor teams are there then just across the sheer breadth of the organization yeah, I know. <laughs> so many people. I don't know if that's even an easy number to count, but uh, well, you would think that we'd have 30, but we don't because every advisor 
is at different stages of their career and size of practice. So if an advisor might have, you know, very different support in what, you know, what they need, if they, they're just starting and they have 15 to 20 clients versus a more seasoned senior advisor, you know, who's has a full, full client base, um, you know, in the 70 to 80 range, you know, very different needs of support. So that's why there's overlap with, with groups. Well, and the, the follow I was going to ask is just what the, what the capacity is. Like, how, what do you think of as a full, a full advisor team in your practice? Well, I think I'll just address that with advisors. I mean, we also, um, we monitor internally um, the number of clients every advisor is working on because we don't want them to get burned out. They work very hard, uh, full service, having doing planning and investment management. Um, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of time um, for for our clients. Um, so so we kind of look at um, maximum capacity level for advisors anywhere between fifty to eighty max of clients per advisor. And is that tied to uh, just how much time it takes? Is that like a revenue goal target? We want advisors to be X dollars of revenue per advisor. And just yeah, how, I mean, how do you figure we, out or set the thresholds of when they're, when they're full? Yeah, we can break it down in, in a lot of metrics. I mean, uh, the one thing I'll mention, because our firm was founded by accountants, we, we keep timesheets. So we keep track of our time. So we know how much time every person puts into an actual client engagement. Um, and so we look at that. We look at number of clients. Uh, what's the mix be- between full planning and looking at that revenue? And also um, if there are clients who are investment management. Um, so we, we look at all of those things, but it's also talking to the advisor and and looking at and helping them manage um, their their client base and and so it's it's all of those things that that we look at but you have to have some kind of a um, a target and some type of a range and so that's kind of where we look at is a pretty full practice for one advisor is anywhere between 50 to 70 to 80 clients so it is it ultimately like a time target I mean I'm, I'm thinking a lot of accounting firms literally have a like you know you need x x x, x billable hours okay. or you know productive hours or client facing hours is is that a metric you you track in the advisory firm as well no we um i would say years ago it was something that leadership looked at just to see how much time are we spending or obviously you have to look at profitability of a particular engagement i think but for here we are today um it's really a, a training tool just to see where we're spending our time and a management tool you know why are we spending so much time on this particular uh task you know, uh, how much time are we spending on tax preparation? We have codes for that. And so because of that, we've been able to look at productivity and efficiency and able to improve on those things and, and always looking at, okay, how can we improve uh, time spent in this particular area? And, and really that's how we've adapted and changed and improved as a business. So are there particular time metrics that you do look at as as measurables or KPIs or or things you track just so many people so much time tracking i'm i'm wondering what what you look at to make sense of all that data well i think that things like 
staff meetings, uh, things like uh, tax preparation, things, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, years ago, we, um, we were looking at our tax preparation and the amount of time it took to actually input all the data into the tax return, knowing we have all this data. And so we were able to, or I should say our IT um, department was able to write an interface that was able to download all the transactions from a client's Schwab account and upload it directly into our tax preparation software. That saved thousands of hours of input time. And so now we just had to review. So again, that was just a result of looking at how much time we're spending. How much time are we spending? Are our staff spending on preparing for a client meeting? And so is it consistent across the board or, or why are, are there some, you know, some people who are spending more time? What are they doing that uh, is causing them to spend more time? So it's a way for us to kind of look at that as a management tool and also for uh, training and development. Interesting. And so, so then it's, it's not even just the advisors that are expected to, to time track, like ev- everyone time tracks, because you're, some of the things you're describing are sort of staff or support roles that you might be optimizing. They do. Advisors, um, you know, also used to keep track of their time. Uh, but I think as time goes on, you kind of have to look at things and reevaluate. Is that the best use of their time? We know, you know, uh, they know what they're spending their time on and that's client meetings and client conversations and, and so on. So recently we did cut, uh, we did have um, certain certain positions not have to um, fill out these um, these timesheets, which, by the way, we also built internally. Uh, it's a proprietary system, so it's all tied into, um, you know, management tools and 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 also being ready for a client who might say, "Hey, how much time do you guys you're charging me this? So how much time you guys spend on this?" And so we're able to pull up that report and pull up how you know all the number of employees spent on uh, a particular client account. Because it it feeds through the CRM system that you use. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. But that's interesting. So the so the evolution of your time tracking has actually been less focused on the advisors and more focused on the other non advisory staff as a way to find where's the time consuming stuff that's chewing up a lot of hours that we need to improve on. Yes that that is how it has evolved. And and I guess I am wondering just. Hearing all this and all the all the tech that you're building internally, I think you said you your your firm originally built its own CRM. You built time tracking and integrations and other layers on top of it. So, just how big is your technology team? Like, what are you? What is as a firm? Like, what do you spend on uh, like technology staff just to do this in house? Yeah, it's two people. The person who had this vision, he was a great mentor of mine. He was with the firm for 30 years before he retired. And he was the one that really had, you know, back then, as you remember, Juncture was really the only CRM system that was available over 26 years ago. And and so we looked at that. And he also realized because of the tax preparation component and also intra-security you know, making sure that we were able to um, have that intrasecurity security internally. And me, I'm talking about permissions and access uh, with employees, uh, restricting mm. access internally and things. And so- Oh, um, yeah, like seg- 
segmenting permissions. So, you know, only certain team members have access to certain client information or private information or can't, you know, can't see other clients that they're not supposed to be able to see. Like just that's, that's more common in CRM systems today, but like no, no one built those permissioning layers. Exactly. 20, 20 plus years ago. Exactly. So that's why we decided then to build our own. And so it started, you know, over 26 years ago, actually um, it was a part-time person. Um, he started with us working with, with uh, the partner who was in charge of this project, who had this vision. Um, and here he is today. He's, he's one of my partners. He's, he's our chief technology officer today. And so we've just, And that, our CRM has also evolved over time. Uh, We've had to update it. And um, I guess there's disadvantages and advantages. I mean, today, would we create our own app? You know, probably not because now look at all the technology companies that are out there and all the different projects and um, products that are available to us. Um, But now it's so we're we're kind of spoiled by the customization. Uh, If we wanted to see a certain type of metric or support or something, we'd we'd go to our IT department and say, hey, can you guys write something like this? And they would do it. Um, So that's the advantage. The disadvantage, of course, is as we're growing, just adding on and um, and just making sure that we can keep up. So, I mean, I, who knows? In the in the future, we always have to explore whether or not we can continue, and we have to always keep our options open. And I think that's always been the philosophy of our firm: is just looking ahead to make sure we're we're being very mindful of the future and what it's going to look like. So. You've mentioned a, a, a couple of times all, all the different folks that are partners in the firm, uh, right? There, there's advisors, there's uh, IT folks, there's other other people in staff and leadership positions. Uh, Nineteen out of the nearly ninety in total, so uh, a, a good, you know, almost twenty percent of the firm is has mm-hmm. become a partner. So help us understand, like, how, just how does partnership work in your firm going on? 40 odd years now since since it started like uh, just how does it work yeah so that first pivotal moment of be going from transitioning from silo to ensemble um that that was tough because then we had to go from basically a compensation structure of going to a salary and bonus versus a percentage of revenue you know um, if you pay out everything uh, that the you know that that you receive as a company, there's there's really no value to the firm. So that was right. kind of that original thought. Um, so so then it's buying in to to the to, to be an owner of of the firm if you're given that opportunity. Um, but also uh, there was a decision to cap ownership too. And so uh, today, um, no one person can own more than 20% of the company. And and so I think that was part of it. Um, It was also, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was after the restructuring. And then now you have all the owners who own, um, besides the, you know, second generation founders who had already um, had quite a bit of ownership. Now you're kind of like, how do you how do you offer ownership that's fair to everybody else? So then you have to come into, okay, how, how do we make it fair? How do, 
um, we, for continued ownership opportunities. And so we look at different metrics. We look at different contributions that the firm, uh, that individuals make to the firm. And so part of that is, you know, uh, rev- being responsible, a certain number of revenue uh, to the firm, but it's also business development um, that you're for the firm. And it's also contributing to the firm as well. And so um, all those things are taken into account as far as ownership goes. So I, all right. So I've, I've got a couple of, I guess, just following questions, understanding, I guess, the, even just the initial, how this shift to sort of ensemble and multi-firm, multi-owner went, I guess this was sort of like the mid-2000s shift, but you said, do you? so you wanted to, the firm wanted to go from paying everyone percentages of revenue to a salary and bonus structure. Because if all the advisors get sort of the, the maximal percentage of revenue, can be profitable to be an advisor, but there's like literally no money left because you're paying it all out. So the goal is they become owners, they get a salary and bonus structure, but then they participate in profits of the firm. And ideally, your salary plus bonus plus profits should come in somewhere in the neighborhood of what the original percentage of revenue was. But but now you're actually participating as an owner because you're getting profits. You're not just drawing it out as direct advisor compensation. So that, yes. it sounds like that was the original transition. Yes. So And so if you think about it, you know, um, the advisors, uh, pretty much it was a pay cut, really. And so that's the sacrifice that um, well, um, a lot of them had had to make. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, did they like did they get equity in exchange for their lower comp? Did their like equ- did their comp come down, and then they also had to buy in to get shares, and then get their get their profits back? Were they given credit for the the dollars they had, or they still had to buy in fresh? You had to buy in, and Incredible. I was included in that too. And so, um, and so that. That was all, you know, managing expectations, understanding the plan, understanding why, um, and then uh, revisiting and making sure that it continues to be fair. So was there a, like a transition period? Just how does that, like, what was the compromise to get there so you didn't have like an advisor revolution, <laughs> people saying that you're... <laughs> You're cutting my comp this much, I'm out of here. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the uh, communication part. That's why it was so critical. Yeah, there's there's many. Um, yeah, some of my partners today that they could have left. Um, they could have left, but they they saw the future. They saw the um, the possibilities, and um, they they were all in. They were willing to make that bet because they wanted the opportunity for equity appreciation and the sale value like that was yes. that was the carrot for them yes yes and and then how does the valuation work like how do you decide what the value is that they're buying well you have to remember we were founded by accountants so it's always been a so part it, it, of our fabric so it will be precise <laughs> yeah <laughs> very precise uh and and so that's um you know always been uh, something that we've always addressed and internally, and always uh, addressing and discussing. So, is there a like? Is it a valuation formula internally? Like, do you is it is it formulaic? Is it because it sounds like you're not using a third party like come and analyze our numbers and give us valuation? No, we're yeah, we're not using a third party. It's internal. Okay. It's it's a formula, but we're always addressing it and making sure that we feel that it's in alignment. Okay. 
So, so for those who are becoming partners, like just how do they finance it and afford it? Because that's a challenge for a lot of advisors unto itself, particularly when the firm is as large as uh, as yours is. Like, just do they have to come up with cash? Do you? We have them get a bank loan? Do you finance internally? Like, how does the partnership buy-ins work? Yeah, so we we've uh, financed that internally, and so it's it's usually spread out over a number of years, um, and um, that's something that we always have to evaluate too, because you know today we have a lot of. Uh, advisors at a younger age becoming eligible to become partners. Um, and so coming up with, um, you know, a big chunk of change um, might be a little bit of a shock. So we have to uh, address that too and and make sure that we can make sure that it's affordable uh, for, for the newer, younger advisors who are given this opportunity. And is there a typical like financing period or number of years? I mean, are you like Playing the spread that out over five years, like over ten years, uh, how how much do you try to spread it for them to, to make it manageable? Well, I'll use myself as an example. Mine was spread out over six years at the time, okay. and so I think that uh, as time goes on, I think that that's something we'll have to look up at, look at as uh, as the firm, you know, uh, becomes more valuable and it becomes yep. more meaningful. So that's something uh, that we'd have to look at. And uh, uh, are the, is there still some obligation for them to have a, a like a down payment, some cash out of pocket, skin skin in the game as it sometimes framed, uh, <laughs> yeah. or 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 can like can they spread the whole thing out uh, when they when they do a buy in? Yeah, I think um, we're like before. I had to I, per, personally, I had to come up with a, a pretty good amount up front, and um, and and so a little bit of a shock, um, and I think then. The the plan is obviously you get distributions to to help finance that, but then it's all timing. So so now understanding that uh, we work with the individual, and if if they can come up with with something up front, that's great, and we can spread out and come up with a payment plan of some kind. Um, and and so kind of it kind of depends, but we do have a standard format that we like to uh, work with uh, with new partners. And that's all, you know, discussed way ahead of time if we ahead if we know that somebody's on that path so that they can understand what the expectations are. And then take me back to just the criteria of what it takes to become a partner. I think you said there there's like there can be a revenue responsibility component, a business development component and a sort of a broader contributing to the firm component. So I'm Yeah. And then I'd add one more, and that's getting voted in. And and okay. so that's why my advice to all of our employees when they start out is you just never know where the path is going to lead. So make sure that you're consistent in your demeanor, and you don't want that to be an issue. That's why getting exposure to working with as many people is great. And um, being a team player, obviously, and, uh, you know, understanding what it means to to be an effective employee and also ultimately an owner of the company if you want that opportunity. The other thing we also realize, not everybody may not may want to be an owner and everyone's wired differently. And that's okay too. So I'm assuming, well, everybody's got to meet the voted in requirement. I'm assuming you don't necessarily have to meet all three of the others because some of your partners are 
in like non-advisor positions, they don't necessarily have revenue and may not be doing business development. They, I guess, just only qualify off of the third prong of contributing meaningfully to the firm. Yes, correct. Do you have set thresholds of like must must bring in X dollars of new revenue or must be responsible for Y dollars of existing client revenue to be to be eligible or is it is it more subjective with the nominating process? Like how, how do you figure out who's who's actually across the line? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say it's a certain number because you know, we want to be fair and so we look at all at what all the other partners are bringing in too to see what's reasonable uh, as far as expectation on business development. Um, and so that's something that we monitor and that's discussed with the advisor. And then if, if new partners get introduced for buy-in, who who sells? So we have um, had retiring shareholders. And so really it's it's timing. So that part of it, it is more of seeing when and knowing when the shares are going to be available. Okay. So it's, so it's not necessarily a like... Every year we have a you know uh, a, a new inducting class of partners or a new uh, a new buy-in uh, uh, process automatically. It is when there are retiring shareholders or folks that are exiting. It may be every year or may be spaced out every couple of years uh, until the next transaction comes, just based on who's selling when. Yeah, and currently that's what's been happening because because that's what's happened with our retiring shareholders. That's just how it has worked. However, going forward, I think that's something that we will need to to uh, consider. And then, how do you decide who gets to buy? Like just if if a retiring shareholder is selling, and there are nineteen partners plus whoever new is coming in, like does everybody get a chance to bid on one nineteenth of the <laughs> of the shares being sold? Like everybody can get a a pro rata portion? Or are they allocated? Like, how, how do you figure out who gets to buy which and how many shares? Yeah, so that's another um, that's another schedule. I mean, we look at all the contributions that somebody makes. We look at number of of client relationships. We look at. Um, I mean, it's it's a lot of different aspects of contributions to the firm that we look at. So it's 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 tied to contribution data, like the 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 people who are managing more or bringing in more or otherwise doing the big impacty things to the firm are are the ones who get larger larger purchase opportunities. Yes, potentially. The other thing I'll mention is, and I don't know if many firms do this, but this was put in place, you know, by my um, by my mentors, and 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 we also have a. a a rule that when you're 70, when you turn age 70, um, you must sell your shares back to the firm. So you have to exit the mandatory exit at age 70, e- even if they're still working, or is the presumption no one's actually still working at 70 anyways? Well, they can still work if they'd like to beyond 70, but they can't be okay. an owner of the company. So why, why, the, why the threshold and why 70? I think that was put in place by, you know, my mentors, because they didn't want us to have to deal with, um, you know, I think some of the issues that some other firms might be facing now with the older founders not wanting to let go. And and so as you're at that age, you know, 
energy levels aren't as what they're used to be and and things like that. So I think they were being very thoughtful in terms of um, having us, uh, the next generation, to have to to manage and, and work with, with them. So they were basically, I was just like handcuffing themselves to have to sell, but like whatever the other opposite is, like for, forcing themselves to be kicked out <laughs> to sell, yeah. like anti, anti-handcuffed. Yeah, so it's almost like a planned transition succession. So we'll look at every, you know, we're looking at everybody's ages too. So are any of the founders left at this point? I mean, just the firm's been around almost 40 years. So unless they got started really young. Yeah, no, they, um, yeah, the last one, well, he's he was second generation. He's now retired two years. Um, and so he was 70. Wow. So yeah. even even founders and even some even some of the people who bought from the founders have also aged out. Yes. And retired out now. Yes. So I'm so I'm struck by this that you had also noted as was well, as you were talking through some of the 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 partners the executive team who've all been there for 20 plus years and and, and like I I hired I hired that one out of college <laughs> I hired that one I hired that one. So uh I I guess I I'm just curious and intrigued by what the process has been for the firm just to to find people who are staying you know a decade or decades at a time right uh, retention is always a challenge for advisory firms both you in, in advisor roles and and operations in the other roles of the firm as well so what's what is what's the hiring process that's evolved to be able to get people who are a good fit and stay that long so I think overall it's managing expectations. I, I think it's really important. We spend a lot of time up front. Um, years ago, I mean, over 25 years ago, when I was given the task to hire and interview candidates, I really wanted them to understand what the job is like and how can, how can you do that? So I, I came up with assessments years ago, one by one. And, and so there was a time when I had nine assessments. It took a couple of, you know, it took a full day. Um, and I have some employees talking about that now. And they kind of wear it as a badge of honor that they went, made it through that, you know, through that, that interview process. But it worked. Uh, you have to let people know uh, what it's like. So what I did was I took a snippet of every part of the job that they would be doing. And, and I gave them time, you know, a time frame in which they had to complete it. it also, it's all twofold. Not only are they understanding what the job is like and what they're interviewing for, but I get to see how they think, how they process information, how they approach problem solving. And that's really what we are, aren't we? As a financial advisors, we're, we're problem solvers for our mm-hmm. clients. So, um, so that has been a critical way of assessing individuals. So so every position, whatever it is, you you figure out what some of the core tasks are. I guess ideally in HR sense you you draw it from the job description. Uh it was like you you have a mini a mini assessment, like a mini example of tasks from each of the core functional areas and then ask them to just do it and grade their work product. Correct. Correct. And then they can explain, explain things to me. Here's the, here's why I do this because, you know, we talked a, bit, a little bit ago about it, the advancement of technology, which has been great. It's, it's helped on efficiencies and we have these wonderful, you know, applications out there. The problem is, is that the younger folks, 
learn, what are they learning? They're learning how to just input numbers and input this number on here. And, and, and then they push a submit and then a nice report will come out. They, they really don't understand if the numbers are right. And so how do you how do you know if the numbers are right? And the way you know that is you get a calculator and you get a pen and paper and you figure it out, you know. They, they, they don't do that now. You know, one of the assessments I give is actually just creating a spreadsheet from scratch with a list of data. And then I give them instructions on what I want to see. You know, that is probably one of the most challenging assessments. They don't know, they don't know where to start. So, so I think that there's this gap now while we have, it's great to have this technology available to us today. I think on the other hand, um, they're not learning what they need to be learning. They're not, you know, able to lift up the hood and actually see how the engine works. And so the tasks, it sounds like are, are maybe beyond, beyond just, uh, you know, use the tools and software. It's like show some understanding. So, you know, not in, in you know, input numbers, you know, a retirement projection and make the chart. It's like, here's a spreadsheet. Can you figure out what this is going to project out to? Yes. I actually don't have them, uh, you know, do an assessment on actual programs or applications. It's all seeing what they can do by, by themselves from something from scratch. Or giving them a spreadsheet and say, okay, here's more information. How are you going to put that together? And how are you going to show it to me? So, and, and, and by doing this, um, you know, when they, when they join us, you know, we always ask at the, you know, after a month or two of training, um, is there any surprise about this job? Because I need that feedback too. And 100%, no, this is exactly what you told me I'd be doing. And I remember this from the assessments. So how long does it take to like to create these and set them up in the first place? Well, I, I created them years ago, so we've continued to use them. However, um, now with, you know, now that we have Zoom and we can be more efficient with the meetings, we've kind of whittled them down to just a few. Um, the few that we've picked that really can kind of get to what we want to learn from an applicant and also for the applicant to understand what they're really going to be doing. Um, in the, in this job. The other part of the hiring process is I really think it's important for an applicant to talk to people who are actually doing the job that they're applying for. So I have, I connect them to somebody who might have a similar background or who maybe went to the same school and, and who may have actually just joined us, you know, maybe six or seven months ago because they're in the training. They're doing, you know, what this person is applying for. And I think that's important too to connect them and let them have an open discussion about what it's really like to work at our firm. And so that's important. And then even um, now, just, you know, seeing the office, uh, you know, so many times I, I talk to many students and, you know, one of the things I tell them is don't just go to an office just to go there, go with intention, go look around, see how the desks are arranged, see, you know, ask where you might be sitting, you know, are the advisors all closed off or the supervisors all closed off in separate offices? Mm. You know, what, what is, what, what does the office look like? And um, that's important. And also, you know, look to see the faces of the people, you know, uh, are they, you know, are they engaged? Are they, you know, look bored or whatever. I mean, you got to look at all those things when you're when you're visiting an office. And it's just like when you go to a college, when you're looking at schools, you, you know it when you feel it. So I'm, I'm curious just if you can give us some examples of like the assessments that survive, like now that you've 
you had a bunch and you've whittled them down. Like just can you give us some examples of what what they are, like what you ask people to do and then measure and evaluate? Sure. One of them um, is a, a simple pay stub exercise. So I'll give um, a couple of pay stubs for a client, not consecutive. Um, I'll give them a calendar and uh, I'll give them a list of questions. And I tell them I want to see your work and um, I'll see how they how they do with that. So one of the questions might be, what's the uh, projected federal withholding? You know, what are the pre-tax deductions? What's the projected uh, salary for the year? So, you know, understanding how they go through that methodology is um, is interesting. How somebody approaches, you know, it's really a story problem. Everybody does it a little bit differently, and so I'd like to right. I like to see their explanation. and And I always tell them too, I'm I'm not really after the right answer. I mean, I could care less if you get the right answer. I want to I want to see how you got to that answer. So it's more of how do you think. It reminds me there was there was a version of this I did many years ago when I was had a director of financial planning hat. It, it was it was very directly I guess a a version of this like would would give would give prospective financial planning hires like a a hypothetical case scenario of you know your your client just called uh, their mother passed away they're inheriting about three hundred thousand dollars and they've got a a two hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgage. And so they're asking that, you know, infamous question, like, I've inherited three hundred thousand dollars with a with a mortgage. Should I invest the money or should I use the money to pay down the mortgage? And and the task then would just be like write write the email that you would write in response to the client. And so it was it was just interesting. Like it wasn't really about what's the right answer, because there's really not like a true right answer to that. There's a lot of lot of views and preferences about it. So we could see like, you know, just what is their view. How do they how do they think about and logic through the problem? Can they write and communicate it to the client? Like, can they explain this to the client in an understandable way? Uh, but then we can also just look at overall communication. Like, you know, first thing I would always I would always look for on that on that assessment exercise. Like, does the email start with "I'm so sorry your mom died"? Like, do they pick up on that, or do they just start saying like? <laughs> Are they writing like, dear client, let me show you some math about inve- you know the long-term return of a portfolio versus the after-tax borrowing cost on a on a mortgage? Like, yes, I want to see some of the math stuff as well and how you explain it. But like, do you have the wherewithal to recognize that the client just told you their mom died and that you right. might take a moment to acknowledge that? So just very similar in in vain. And and it was it always fascinated me how wonderfully different and varied people showed up with responses to that that kind of assessment exercise. Yes. yes. And and now with, you know, there's so many other assessment tools out there. Uh, we use um, predictive index too. That's online. That's more of looking at behavioral traits and cognitive traits as well, but more of job fit just to, you know, give us a, a you know, a report of job fit. Um, there's no right or wrong answer to that either because everybody's different. And that's what I love about this business too, is that we're all different, but we all, you know, we're all in the same career or same industry. Uh, we just all do it a little bit differently. And for us, we recognize that. And that's one of the few things I tell people when they join us is that, you know, you may not like everybody because there's so many different personalities, but here's why it works is because everybody respects one another. 
So for, for those who aren't familiar, can you just explain for a moment what what predictive index is and just why you, why you picked that one in particular? Yeah, it's a um, it's an application and it's really it's a very quick assessment for a candidate to go through behavioral a behavioral report and looking at behavioral traits, but then there's also a cognitive um, assessment, which is timed, and they can go through that kind of like I hate to call it an IQ, but it's it, it's kind of in that area. Um, but the point is, is that then you kind of um, as as the manager of that tool, you can kind of put in all the attributes, characters, characteristics, skill sets in terms of the job that you're trying to fill. And then the applicants, based on these results, will kind of give you an idea of whether or not it's a good percentage fit or maybe it's not, you know, kind of give you a range. We don't use it as a, you know, as a final determining factor. It just kind of gives us additional insight so that we can kind of direct questions to the candidate in a certain way. Very interesting. And so what about non-advisor roles? Just the the assessments you described were... We're all we're all very advisor oriented. Do you do you only use this in the advisor domain, or is there like a version of this if you're uh, hiring for uh, someone who's a client service coordinator as well? Oh yeah, we have assessments for those roles too. Okay. And what that assessment might look like is here is a blank uh, application Schwab application, for example, and here's all the information about the client. How are you going to fill it in? Okay. So and, and, it seems like it should be straightforward, but if you really can't take the information and get into the form, that would be really helpful to know now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what yeah. questions? Because we're obviously not going to include some things. And so we'll want to see, hey, are they going to be able to notice that this is missing or, or something like that? And really looking at what questions do they ask? Okay. And and what if it's like what if it's someone who doesn't have experience in the role? Like, or do you worry that some of these like might be a sharp person, but they just don't know because they've literally never done this before? Or is the idea these are all flexible enough that they should be able to figure it out? Yeah, I think that because um, we, we have hired people who don't have relevant experience, but they have transferable skills from other experiences that you know you should never ignore. Uh, and so it's more of, are they coachable and do they have potential? So uh, we can work with that. And a lot of times it's like, yeah, you may have never done this before, but we'd like to see how you do because this is what the job entails. So you're either going to like it or you're not, or you're going to be, you know, really intrigued by it. And if it, you know, uh, if you're curious about it, then you're going to learn. So having been at the firm now for closing in on 40 years, what, what surprised you the most about just the way the business has changed over the, over the years, over the decades? Well, um, gosh, um, I feel so old when you say that, but it's okay. <laughs> Sorry. I just, I do appreciate the, the phenomenon of the passage of time. I know. No, it's okay. I mean, I, um, I have no problems. I, I mean, I literally started when I was 20 and I, I turned 21 my first week of work and I was working on a client audit which I had no idea. So I didn't get to go and celebrate my 21st birthday. (laughs) And, and here I am, you know, almost 37 years, 
later. So it's it's really kind of neat. It's something I'm actually very proud of. But um, I don't know that anything is really surprising. I think that you know it's too bad, and I and I really appreciate your efforts, Michael, in our industry and the work that you do. It's just too bad that there's no consistency, you know. Um, and every RIA, I guess, I guess that's the, just the nature of this business is everybody runs their businesses a little bit differently. But it's so it's so confusing for the younger people, you know. When I have to explain, listen, you know, don't go after the titles, you know. Where I just had a, a conversation with a young person about this, and they're saying, "Well, what's well, what title is this? Am I applying for?" you know, as a financial planning associate, when they're looking at a job that's called a wealth advisor, when I know that it's not really a wealth advisor, it's the same thing. But it's so hard to explain that to a, um, to a new graduate. So it's more of, I wish there could be a little bit more consistency in terms of the job descriptions, but I know it's, it's probably impossible only because again, because we do tax returns too. So, um, that's uh, that's a little bit of frustration, I guess. Nothing has really surprised me. Um, it's interesting uh, to see uh, how things are playing out, all the uh, M&A activity that's occurring now, the lack of succession planning. So again, those are some things that I'm, that I'm really proud of our firm in, in getting ahead of that. Um, the, uh, the amount of time we spend on coaching and mentoring our people so that they do stay. And so they do understand they have a path. They do have uh, a future they, you know, for whatever they'd like to accomplish. And so I think that's, that's important too. So I don't know. I, I will say that I'm a little surprised with some of the M&A activity that's going on, but not really when you kind of, you know, go underneath that, you know, the level of uh, the iceberg theory that you come up with, you know, that you talk about and in kind of seeing all the hard things that happen and all the challenging um, aspects of managing a business. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask like what, what makes it not surprising to you around the M and a. And so it sounds like your, your, your view of it is, yeah, this stuff really is messy and there's, there's probably firm owners that are just getting the messy part and can't figure out the succession. And so, Yep. Then they're they're selling, and there's another one getting sold. Yeah, that's that's what's not surprising because you know they're realizing just too late that the younger folks can't afford them, and they want to. Um, you know, they've worked a long time. They put blood, sweat, tears, and put a lot of sacrifice in um, because they're building the business and they're building the industry. You know, we don't have that now. The, the businesses have been built, so we have to recognize that too. Um, and the, the, the founders have to recognize that. So I think that what will be interesting to see is what these, um, these acquired firms look like in the next, you know, three to five years yeah. as they evolve. Cause I think a, a lot of these acquirers are still trying to figure it out. And so your firm managed it because you've distributed across ownership across so many people and you're you're already almost twenty years into multiple generations of owners buying in since they did the big comp and ownership structure change back in the mid two thousands. Yes, I think I think that's a huge part of it. So what what was the low point in this journey for you? Um, personally. Yeah. I you know I 
I don't know that there was ever a, a low point. Um, I'm always, you know, I'm, I've, I like to think of myself as a true optimist always. Um, we can always figure it out. And so I think probably it's just frustrations maybe for things not getting done as quickly as I would like. Um, but I, I can't say that there was really a, a low point. I always look at every change as an opportunity. Um, I think some of the challenges we face is change. And because of, on one hand, it's great having this high retention and tenure and growing up with my partners um, yeah. and seeing people grow up and develop. And it's wonderful to see. But on the other hand, it's hard for change sometimes. And adapting and getting away from the well, I used to, we always used to do it this way. Why why do we have to change it? But I think also, you know, as as we're now looking ahead and looking at all the you know technology that's available to us, I think it's what's I've learned is that the communication is so critical. Uh, it's it's not telling everybody what's going to be done. It's including everybody in the conversation. And I think that's really important. Even though we may not go in a certain direction because somebody would like to go in it that way, but at least they were part of the conversation. And a lot of times they say, well, thanks for asking. You know, I appreciate it actually being heard. And, you know, you guys listen to me and I understand why you're, you're going in this direction, something like that. So I think what I've learned is the communication transparency um, from leadership on down is is just so important to an organization and to the fabric of the culture. So what else do you, it's like, what else do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you 20 plus years ago when you were moving into the leadership position? Um, <laughs> what, what do you know now you wish you knew back then? Well, uh, I think that I don't want to say it was hard because for me, it's just like, I just put my head down and just plow through it. Um, I, I think that I probably cared too much about what other people thought where it could have delayed things, but I, I don't regret that. I think it's important that other people knew that I care. And, and so, um, I don't, I, I really, I, I don't really have any regrets. If anything, for me personally, earlier on, I probably should have had a little bit more confidence in my ability. And, and so now um, being a, a Korean woman in this, you know, this industry, uh, I'm like, yeah, I, I never really thought about that until people brought it up to me. <laughs> just, just, just because I've always been in the minority. So what advice would you give to younger and newer advisors looking to like come in and get started in the industry today and want to want to get off on a good foot? Well, I, I tell students that, you know, it's important that you first understand what's important to you. So kind of building your ideal culture in a company, what, what's really important to you. And then when you start meeting with potential employers, kind of seeing how they fit into that. There's so many times I think young people get persuaded so easily and not really being mindful about that and sticking to their core values. I think that's important. I think also not to be so narrow-minded and um, to understand and, and try to get a big picture. It's, it's also not about the money. Um, I think that, of course, we need to make a living in things, but if you're always chasing money, you're really never going to be satisfied. So I think, uh, you know, just 
saying those things, uh, I, I think back on, you know, that would have been helpful to me too. Um, I also tell students that, you know, your first job out of college may not be your lifelong job, um, unless, unless, of course, you work at our firm. <laughs> yeah. But um, but it does set the tone for your career path. So I, I tell students, be, be very mindful about that first job. Just don't jump at the first opportunity because it's a job. It's the first job you offer you get. Really think about what you want to do and think about if that if that firm and that job is going to fit and be in alignment with your core values and who you are. And I'd also say don't burn any bridges, you know, yeah. uh, because the world is small and you will. Yeah, the uh, financial planning world is really small. It is. Yeah. It is. Even between you and I, I mean, we have yeah. a lot of mutual connections and things. Yeah. So uh, just don't burn any bridges. And I've even helped people leave our firm because I also know that if you don't like what you're doing, uh, your job performance is going to go down and you're going to be asked to leave. So I've helped people figure out, let's figure out your next move. But in the meantime, let me find your replacement and here's what you need to do. And uh, just make sure you leave on good terms so nobody can talk badly about you. And so uh, because of that advice, we've rehired about uh, seven people <laughs> and oh, who wow. have gone. And because of whatever, personal reasons. And I will also be the first one to tell people, if you're really going to regret not trying that opportunity, then you got to try it. So, and we'll um, be here if you want to come back. Yeah, just make sure you you know you do it the right way. So, as we wrap up, it's a podcast about success, and and just one of the themes always comes up is the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you've had this wonderful path for your career of of building within the firm to the the I guess all the all the way from entry level start turning twenty one to to executive leadership as the COO of the firm. So the business and career has gone well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, that's, um, you know, as I think about that question, I I think that um, the definition of success changes as we age and go through different stages of our life. Um, I also think that, you know, success is really in the eyes of the observer a lot of times. So for me now, you know, as I work with others, I, I really view their successes as my successes if I have a, a role in, in their development. Um, and I think for me now, it's having an impact. You know, i looking at how have I added value, um, knowing in my heart that I did the right thing, I think to me is, is what defines success where I am today. Well, and I, I, I can hear it in how how positively you talk of all the people who've been there a long time that you got to hire and bring in and train and develop. It's, it's really cool to see over the, over the span of the growth of the firm. Yeah, it truly is. I mean, it really gives me a sense of personal pride too. And if there's anything I've also learned as a leader, as you know, I have grown in my career and my career path, you know, coming to different parts in my career and just understanding that letting go is hard, but holding on is harder. So, you know, and I think that's something that we all recognize uh, and we have recognized uh, at our firm. And that's why we continue to be successful because we're always working on developing that next generation. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Thank you, Yanni, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. 
Thank you so much, Michael, for, for having me. Truly, it's been, it's been an honor, and um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.